to the Influence Factory podcast. This program is dedicated to support professionals who have a desire to develop their digital business influence so they can navigate through a fast-paced, constantly growing digital world. We invite newcomers as well as our family of business influencers to a place to play, share ideas, questions, tips, and guidance with other thought leaders around the globe. Sit back and enjoy our program with your host, Dean Delisle, as he interviews guests. News and commentary are provided by Jackson Delisle and Monica Hacker. Power Move lessons are provided by the Influencer Marketing Department at Social Jack. And production, editing, and distribution is provided by the Social Jack production team. Today's show is brought to you by Planable. Planable Planable.io gives your social media team everything they need to really move their creative process forward. It allows you to preview social media posts as they are live, real time. No more screenshots, mock-ups, spreadsheets. Your clients can review content from within the platform. And do you have anything to say about it, Monica? It's a great platform. We've been using it now for a month. I love it. Um, it's a game changer in the content world. I highly suggest it. Yeah, go to Planable, P-L-A-N-A-B-L-E.io to start your free trial today. All right. This week's influencer guest is Alistair Wellesley. He is founder and CEO of Digital Times Transformation. It's an advisory and human capital management corporation providing board-level consultation in the cybersecurity, risk management, and digitalization space. He has a great passion for this topic and driving business solutions in an ever-evolving world. And if we've ever been in an ever-evolving world, it's been during this time that we're in right now. So with uh, without further ado, uh, Alistair, welcome to the Influence Factory. Dean, great to see you. I hope all's, uh, hope all's well with you and uh, your family, loved ones, and, uh, and uh, your group employees as well. Everybody good? Yes, absolutely. And uh, and uh, you as well. And we're social distancing, right? So you're you're on the uh, East Coast. I'm in the Midwest. So there's we're, we're doing our job so far. Yeah, you got it, man. That social distancing. I love that new word. You know, that's uh, that's a phrase to uh, that's going to be around by the sound of things for quite some time, right? Yeah. Well, the crazy thing is, is, is <laughs> I've been a networker and collaborator for as long as I can remember. And, you know, it was always about connecting and getting people together. And now this new world that we're in is about staying connected while we're disconnected. So, you know, I think I have another book to work on here. So <laughs> I think you do. I think you just actually made up the title of it as well. So it's a good one. Send me a copy when it's done, right? Yeah, you bet, man. You bet. So here's what's funny. So, uh, so I spent uh, I spent a little part of my youth, as you know, we've told our stories back and forth for quite some time. Uh, my mom was in uh, the UK. I, I lived there uh, till I was about in third grade and, uh, and ran the streets uh, of uh, London. I always say like Oliver Twist, I was a scrapper. We ran, I, I just remember running the streets and getting picked up by Bobbies and shuffled home. They knew who we were and it was just... It was just a life that I knew I've grown up on the streets. So, so when I, you know, when I met you and uh, grown up in the UK, I had this same vision that I'm like, dang, I might have even seen him when I was running around on the streets. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, now, now I recognize you, Dean. Now, 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 now coming back. To this. There you go. Uh, so, you know, so I always just like to hear about, and and our our audience likes to hear about. You know, because we believe that that you know, in our youth is what weaves us to who we become, right? So, so the experiences that we have, the upbringing that we have, take us a little bit uh, through a, a, just your your upbringing and and you know the where, maybe the people that influenced you that like me needed a little guidance in the right direction at times, and and just go for it, man, and uh, we'll pick it up from there. Appreciate it, appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, you're gonna have to cut me off because you know what I like when I get on a when I get on the. Uh, uh, the train here, but um, I, you know, I mean, in terms of my upbringing, it was uh, just—I mean, just a fantastic family upbringing. Um, I was adopted as a young baby, and um, and so six weeks old actually. Um, but uh, for my uh, for my sake, I was adopted by just the most amazing, amazing uh, British family. Um, great mother, great father. Unfortunately, have both passed away now, and uh, three sisters uh, and a brother. And we were a very strong family unit, despite the fact that we had quite a varying age degree. 
um, you know, uh, uh, between us all, um, something like I think probably about 16, 17 years from Elvis to youngest. Yeah, exactly. Um, we, you know, we, we, we were and grew up as a tremendous family unit and we still remain a tremendous family unit. So I think in terms of from my own personal background, I had the absolute privilege of being one of those children that sort of understood family and principles and values. Um, you know, my two parents, bless their cotton socks, were from that generation uh, where it was all about, you know, uh, if you want something, get out there and do it. Don't expect to be given it. Um, and we were taught that, you know, we were taught the, the simple pleasures of life at a, at a young age. I mean, you know, it was, you know, family holidays and camping and uh, country walks uh, with the dogs was sort of the entertainment. And I can remember from a diddly squat age of being, you know, out the front door at the weekends from early in the morning with my friends running around the village we lived in, you know, playing various different games and whatever else. And the only time you had to be back was for lunch and then you had to be back in the the evening for, for, for dinner and um, yeah, bath, and then of course you wanted to go back out, and you were promptly put into bed. Um, <laughs> wasn't you know, that the best? Though? Wasn't wasn't that the best? It wasn't that the best. You couldn't think about maybe that today. Just to let your kids run loose. Unbelievable, because it teaches you so many different things, and it's only when you get older you're able to look back on those those lessons that at the time you don't realize they're lessons. They're just your your life. Your life is climbing up and down trees. It's running around parks. It's playing. Well, we call it football, you call it soccer, and any anything else that we could get our hands on in terms of balls and, and such like. And, you know, you look back now, of course, and you realize it's teaching you an independence. It's teaching you that ability to be able to think for yourself. Um, but you're not doing it, you know, consciously. It's just happening. It's part of growing up. And, it, and, and of course, you know, we can all... We always listen to, I remember listening to my parents complain about, you know, our generation. I sit there and I complain about my children's generation. So there's always criticism being handed down. But it, it is a shame that, it is a shame, Dean, that we've got, uh, society's got itself into this uh, bit of a pickle where uh, that independence has been somewhat taken away, I think, from children because uh, because of a lot of things that go on out there. And uh you know, parents are not so comfortable letting their children uh, run around and not know where they are for a few hours, et cetera, et cetera, these days. And probably rightly so. I mean, there's some pretty bad stuff out there on the streets, oh, yeah. as we well know. Um, but it is a shame. And it is a shame those freedoms in some respects have been lost. Maybe the funny thing is with this complete lockdown that we've got at the moment, as much as all of us don't want it and we want to get out there and, and do things, you know, as I said to, you know, my kids, uh, with me, and you know, I said to them, "Well, the funny thing is, we've always been close to the family unit because of the way I was brought up. But maybe this gives other parents out there the opportunity of spending more time with their own children uh, in these times because they've got no choice. They can't take them to sporting activities. They can't leave them with a babysitter or a nanny or or somebody else while they go do their own things. So." Hopefully, there's been some benefits from that. Um, but that that was my early upbringing. I mean, I was. Uh, I think, you know, school for me was one of those things where uh, in my young days, I thoroughly enjoyed it. In my sort of uh, teens, not so much. Uh, I think I hear that from everybody. Um, but I made a very strange decision. It was a very sort of adolescent, spontaneous decision. I persuaded my parents at the grand age of 16, believe it or not, Dean, to, to let me leave school. Um, in, in the British schooling system, um, you have, in those days, you had something called O-levels. And uh, I passed enough O-levels to carry on to A-levels, which would have finished my high school education. Um, and and that would have then, depending on the grades, allowed me go, to go on to university. And I was lined up for university, just like all the family members have been lined up for university. But at 16, for a number of personal decisions, I decided I just wanted to get out and work. Um, it was a very spontaneous uh, decision. And I persuaded them to let me... To, to, to leave school and join a, a bank. And this particular bank was called Coots and Company. And Coots and Company is quite famous because it's where the Queen banks. Ah. Um, and so, yeah, the Queen's banker. Uh, and so as a result of um, this sort of prestigious name, I was able to persuade my parents, this is what I want to do. Because I didn't want to be banking at all, but I just wanted to leave school. Uh, and I, I think at that time I had this notion that, well, I just want to get out there and work. Um, I'd already started work. I start working. I was working at twelve years old. I mean, I was, you know, whatever it was, whether it was delivering newspapers at fourteen, pretending I was eighteen, and working at a toy shop and serving people behind the counter and things like that. 
then I'd always had this want to to work. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed making money. And you know, I remember when I was um, younger playing uh, football. I played rugby at school. Big passionate rugby player. Played rugby at school, but played football when I was younger. And my parent, my mother didn't particularly uh, like me playing football because I was mixing with the local villagers and she wanted me to mix with the, the, the grammar school uh, boys instead. And so anyway, so I said, well, I'm going to play. And she said, well, I'm not buying you a football boot. You'll have to buy your own. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to go and get a job and buy my own. So that's what, and that, you know, I was brought up that way. And so it's like, okay, if you're not going to support me on that, I better figure out a way I'm going to get this myself. And I got myself, I went around every shop in our little market town and eventually got a Saturday morning job. And uh, and that gave me enough money to buy my football boots. And then I went off and played football. You know, so sort of there wasn't a fear in me in terms of working. There was never that view of, oh my God, what am I going to do this, that, and what else? I mean, I look back on it now and I wonder, you know, because my idea was to study law at university and think to myself, well, I probably could have, you know, had all of that in the legal world, and that would have been fun. But on the other side of the coin, you know, I decided to just seize the initiative and go for it. So I left at 16, I joined Coots and Company. I worked there for about a year. And then a, a, a family friend um, was in the real estate uh, business and uh, said to my parents, you know, if Alistair ever wanted to come into real estate, I think he would do well in selling property um, and I took up the offer and uh, for five years I was uh, working in real estate very successful in selling uh, won a lot of sales competitions you know we would have these month-to-month competitions etc not all of them but enough to keep my head in the in the top percentage and um, <clears throat> and then saw an opportunity to move to London and uh, and joined and fact uh, joined a magazine where I was selling property advertising space. So I was selling advertising, but I was selling it to the real estate brokers. That was like in the Mad Men days too, right? That was real advertising. Yeah. That was generation yeah, yeah, one yeah. or two advertising. Yeah, that was a crazy time. That was a crazy time, Dean. I mean, like, you know, they, 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 that was my introduction to uh, business lunches, I think, because we used to <laughs> we used to get to the office at 9.30 in the morning. Nobody started before 9.30 in advertising. And then you were sort of expected to be out of the office by 12.30 because you were expected to be mining and dining somebody. And in those days when I joined, I think there was something like an average of 20 pages a month in um, advertising. Uh, and within 12 months, I'd taken that average of 20 pages a month to a, to 120 pages a month. Wow. And uh, yeah, so we'd done pretty well with that. And uh, uh, you know, that sort of introduced me to good wines and, and great dining food. I was I was living down in London as well, so that was quite an experience. For I was 20, 22, 21, 22, so very young in comparison. So, um, um, uh, and then decided another spontaneous decision. I'm going to go travelling, um, and I, I decided to stop what I was doing. I uh, got a backpack and I bought a ticket and I, I left <laughs> left England. With literally a hundred US dollars in my pocket, and this is in 1988 or 87, and so you know it wasn't a lot of money, obviously, uh, even then. <clears throat> and got to uh, got to America and, and hang out with a, a, a great girlfriend uh, for a week or so, and then uh, travelled uh, on to Australia, and I stayed in Australia for for six months and just literally backpacked, uh, worked. Uh, made enough money to be able to go and spend a couple of months in Thailand and Bali on the way home, and um, and then when I got back, I mean, I remember hiding from my parents because I had no money because I spent it all in Bali and Thailand. And uh, I, I thought, I'm not going to tell them my phone until I actually go and get a job because that's the first thing they're going to do. What the hell are you doing? Um, and I went into this recruitment company and I uh, got told by a friend of mine that they would help me get a sales job. So I, thought, I don't, don't even know what recruitment's all about. And I uh, went into this recruitment company and within four hours, they offered me a job and we negotiated terms over the next week. And I went into the, the, the merry industry of recruitment. And, and, I, and it was one of those I thought, well, you know what? I need the job. I've got the salary. And if I really don't like it here, a recruitment company, I can probably find another job through them while I'm here. So I didn't think it was a bad idea. Yeah, right. Um, but within six weeks, I just fell in love with it. Absolutely fell in love with it. And I thought, this is the industry. This is where I want to be. I didn't really like the company it's working for. And it was a very commoditized 
you know, they get them in, get them out, put an invoice on their back. It was bing, bang, bosh, everything that's bad about the recruitment industry, in fairness. Um, but it was a crazy time. If you think back to those uh, late 80s, it was all about, you know, Wall Street and making money and uh, bullish markets and bear markets and all those type of things. So, that's, yeah, you know, that's where, yeah, that's where I was at, Merrill Lynch. So I was I started at Merrill Lynch, but I was on the tech side of Merrill Lynch. I wasn't in the, the money side. But what's interesting about the parallel here is I remember looking across the fence and seeing the recruiting and I was getting hit up by recruiters because I was – I was a hot commodity in the tech space and I had my right. hands on Merrill Lynch. So I had that, that, that sort of blue blood, but I was anti uh, corporate America because I didn't have a degree and things like that either. So I was sort of the rebel, but I was attracted by IBM and took all their courses and their sales training. And I was like, and they were always talking about the consulting and the consultants were marching in, making all this money. And I go, I want to be a consultant. So then I left Merrill Lynch and I went, talked to my IBM buddies and just became a consultant, but it was either recruiting or consulting seemed like the hot ticket, you know? I think you picked the, I think you picked the, the, the right one with the consulting because, you know, the recruitment marketplace is a great marketplace, but you know, it's funny actually because you have a lot of people from the outside think that it's quite an easy way of making money, but actually it's an extremely complex sales team because if you think about it, it's a four, it's a four way sales process. I mean, first of all, you've got to sell yourself to, a company that are going to use you to actually go source this person. You've got to sell the job to a candidate. You've got to sell yourself to the candidate. You've got to sell the candidate to the company and the company to the candidate. So you've got this, you've got a complex scenario and you're dealing with an intangible because you're dealing with a person on both sides. And unfortunately, people have minds and therefore can change their mind at the flick of a switch. Right. Um, so it's funny seeing people who, have, you know, I've been in it for 25 plus years who have come in actually who say oh my goodness i would never realize this is so tough um and so you have to be very tenacious in it the, the thing i didn't like is that you know probably back in the ages the recruitment industry really really exploded didn't it i mean it's all like became a uh, a service that everybody turned to companies were growing etc cetera, etc cetera, and they needed that but the the industry itself i think it didn't do itself favors with shifting towards the contingency model and uh, and sort of almost having this sort of junior pack of, uh, of walls out there, not really looking at the person, not really looking or caring about what the person was going to do, just like, oh, I've made a placement so I can get some commission. Um, and so that, for me, meant that having started up a business in the early 90s with a couple of friends that I was working with, I, I did not want to stay in that side of the industry. And uh, I wanted to stay in recruitment, but I didn't want to stay in contingency recruitment so I, I took my sort of fast move sales skills that I got and shifted it into retained search and in 1993 uh, landed a I can't mention the company name but uh, but one of the very big tech firms landed a um, a really nice contract in the outsourcing space and uh, uh, took that work on and uh, had a couple of guys working for me and uh, my company's called Morgan Howard and uh, we absolutely knocked that assignment out of the park I mean I can still remember the three people I placed in 1993. We took this uh, contract on in October. We had them all signed up, literally all signed up and on board by February 1st. Um, So I wasn't for much. And in those days, for that particular company, I was not selling a permanent job. I was actually selling a two-year fixed-term contract, um, which had been bought in by this tech company in that particular country simply because of the, uh, you know, the, the concern with uh, where the markets are moving to, et cetera, et cetera. They, within six months of finishing this work, they converted everybody into full-time employees and that uh, two-year uh, fixed-term contract went out the window. So that was a tough sell, but it was a great, great uh, opening and we got a lot more work out of them. And that was the beginning of my company, which was grandiosely called Morgan Howard. And without boring you with every detail, I mean, Morgan Howard, I took from those uh, early days in 93, that by 98, we were doing work across the UK and Europe, all in the tech sector, all retained search work. And then I saw, I was with one of my colleagues who had found some work in Europe. We were sat in Paris. We were out on a beautiful area of Paris in the 16th district. Um, You know, we were obviously working hard because we were drinking pasties and beers, as you do. Um, and uh, he suddenly came up with this bright idea. Why don't we open an office in Paris? And I thought, oh, so we went racing back home after we finished that week over there doing that assignment. Uh, We were racing back home, told everybody working in an office in Paris. 
And that's what we did. It took us a year to get us open because I had to go and find a French, uh, a French national to run it. A great guy, sort of friend of mine today. And we bought uh, uh, Lillian on board in, uh, I think it was the beginning of 1998. And um, and then, you know, Dean, it was just like, oh, my God. It's like the lights have gone on. All of a sudden, I see this. Hang on a second. We've got an opportunity to be a really, really smart boutique, you know, uh, retained only uh, search company specializing in technology, um, technology search work. So that could be a tech company. That could be functional tech. And so I had, what, well, in the beginning of 1998, including Paris, I had 21 employees. By 2000, I'm going to say May, June of 2000, um, we had gone from being about a million, million and a half dollar business to being a $20 million business. And we had 10 offices globally and we had 120, 130 people working for us. Yeah. So that was just, I just had a blast, man. That was just an absolute blast. What can I tell you? And I, out there, we, we got Europe, we got Paris, we got Spain, we got Italy, we got, uh, Amsterdam or Netherlands. We got Singapore going, we got Hong Kong going, we got Palo Alto going. I mean, we just had an absolute bust. But of course, we thought we were brilliant. But the markets were really what was brilliant. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. All of yeah. us were all of us were living off of that. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, you had everything. I mean, you had just the perfect storm, the positive perfect storm. You know, you had deregulation in telecommunications, right? You had year two thousand. Everybody forgets this. Everybody thought the world was going to, you know, collapse and planes <laughs> were going to drop out of the sky and. You know, and I, I'm just like, okay, well, I'm not going to be flying that night anyway. So it doesn't matter as long as you, you know, you're interested. Well, in well you know, funny, funny story. You'll relate to this because you were replacing tech guys. I became a programmer and I had about probably 50,000, 100 lines of code out there in the world. And, uh, and, and Y2K came and I go, well, it's not a big deal. We just need to put like five pieces of code. But people were paying like, you know, $50,000 for a piece of code. Because <laughs> just to feel better, I was like, Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I probably, and I'm sure I didn't even charge enough, you know, but it was just like crazy. Oh, you could, you could literally charge. And I mean, we would walk into a, I remember walking to a couple of tech companies that were clients of ours. We were working big time with IBM then and we were doing consulting work with McKinsey, believe it or not, and stuff like that. And, and, and we were extremely well thought of, but you'd walk into a meeting expecting to sit down, you know, normal discussion and how can I help and where are you going to what have you. And you literally would walk out with a contract, go find these five people like now, get them signed off, get me with the paperwork, we'll raise you your retainer invoice, please don't wait, we are desperate to hire. Um, so it was a crazy time. But, we thought we were brilliant, but um, you know, I think market for this. Um, yeah. So now, listen. I mean, of course, you know, all of that was just growth, 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 and then we got hit with the dot com um, drop back. So that was my real first experience of sort of the negative side of uh, of a business. I mean, I'd seen cutbacks before, but not being in control of the business and not a business which was so personal to me and had, had just experienced nothing but success. So that was mentally that was draining i mean draining and we had to close offices down let people go you know it was just horrible horrible situation um but we came through it we kept morgan Howard alive and i had moved i had been living in the u.s for a short while moved back to europe and i remember calling my wife and, and saying uh you know we're, we're, we're not going to stay here love we've got to we've got to move back to the u.s it's where the tech market's going to come back first yeah. And so myself uh, and two little ones um, <laughs> uh, literally got on the plane and moved over to, we chose Greenwich, Connecticut, which is not a bad place to choose, right. um, and uh, set up shop there and, and kept the UK office going. And we had a, a guy working for us over in Asia. So we kept the global boutique perspective, um, even though it was a highly reduced perspective in terms of headcount. But when we spoke to our client base and they, most of our clients said, we don't care as long as you've got the coverage. That's what we like, but it's not about the numbers of people so much. And, you know, I, I got back on the phone and started wheeling and dealing. And, and it took me six months to, to, to crack it in the U.S. and get a, a, a new search. But once that happened, it was just like, oh, off. And so and then we ended up building a really nice business in the U.S. market. Uh, I probably had about 10 or 12 people over there doing about $5 million, uh, $5 million of, of revenues or something in that region. So, you know, we just went. 
flying off. And that's what I've been doing ever since. The, the time I left Morgan Howard was in 2007, eight for a number of personal reasons. And I really just went into a lifestyle, Alistair on his own, um, just do some consulting work, do some advisory work, do some searches here and there. I've got to, I've got to ask you, how old, how old were the kids when you decided to do that? Uh, well, unfortunately, that was part of the reason that kids were actually still relatively young. Matilda was born in 99, Seb, 2001, so all of that was six or seven, uh, and, and actually, you know, eight or nine. But we've gone, my wife and I got through a divorce, and they were now uh, separated from me. And, uh, you know, I told you about my upbringing earlier, about family and stuff like that. That was just heartbreaking. So I couldn't concentrate. I I needed to be on my own. I needed to have that freedom and not worry about business so much and uh, took that opportunity. And funny enough, I think I would have stayed like that, Dean, if I hadn't been for the children finally coming to live with me because I got on very well with my ex. Um, and she loves the fact the kids have come to uh, live and spend time with me. Um, and it suddenly made me wake up in the morning and go, hang on a second, I can't have two kids around me with with, with them just seeing some of dad just you know, waltzing down to his desk whenever he plans to visit. I'm going to start work again. So that's why I went out. Interesting. Digital Times yeah. transformation and uh, and uh, started going about building that up so that they could see that, you know, you can't just sit on your backside and, and coast life. You've got to get out there and work if you want to be something. Yeah. Um, and that's where we are today. That's DTT today. Yeah, and so, and so that's awesome. And I think... I think it's because you and I lived through, uh, you know, you said that was the worst uh, time that you had ever experienced in business. The dot, the dot com bubble, the burst I lost. I had a hundred million dollar tech company going at that time and it crashed and, and lost about 47 million personally uh, in a short period of time. And we had to recover and, and shift and, and uh, you know, and so, it, it was an interesting time, but I do believe that time for all of us has helped us with this current time and situation that we're in with, you know, COVID, yeah. right? And now all of a sudden we've got cybersecurity and COVID sort of mashing up together. And you and I had talked a lot when we first met about people don't take cybersecurity seriously. I don't care. It, oh. it could be our Fortune 500, it could be mid-market, it could be small business. Until something happens to them, or there's a case, or something, and and it's just crazy how people just turn a blind eye to that, and then all of a sudden something like this happens and opens up even more holes in our infrastructure. So maybe you can speak to your thought about that and and what people should pay attention to. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you bring up a couple of really good points, and and DTT has pivoted from technology and digital transformation work heavily into cybersecurity. I mean, I've shared this with you. You've seen it on our, our website that we've just assembled this just incredible advisory group. And then we did that because as I started to see more opportunity and also requests within search work for cybersecurity uh, professionals, be it CISO or be it people within uh, service groups in uh, you know, selling cyber services, et cetera, I didn't feel confident. I didn't feel in myself at that time, I do now, but at that time, taking on that sort of work with my background would be uh, proficient enough for the company. Could I really genuinely put somebody in front of them that, you know, sounded great, looked great, um, but had all the skills? So I actually built this advisory group, and I was very fortunate. I probably got one of the top names in the cybersecurity industry, a guy called David Orksmith, who uh, for 12 years, headed up uh, Microsoft. He was personally approached by Bill Gates, headed up Microsoft's national government's business. That's their cybersecurity business then. And he agreed to join my advisory group. And it was great because I would pick up this, uh, this cyber work and, and I would have David as my sort of validator, my verifier. So I would pull my shortlist together and call him up and say, I got five or six on this shortlist. I want to present to the client. Do you think over the next two or three days you could filter them for me and tell me your opinion on their capabilities. And he would love doing that. And we would go back to the client and say, hey, look, you know, don't take my word for it. It's also been backed out. So this was a very different service offering uh, to the client than you would tend to get from the standard search firm. But when you look, when you look at the cyber marketplace and you start to see it and you learn it, and since then we've gone from David to 28 others, 
uh, and still growing that advisory group and, and doing now more than just search work. We do interim, we do consulting, assessment work, strategic planning. And we've had some big names with, with us. One of the biggest pharma companies uh, in the world actually just used DTT to do some of their financial well, investment. And, I, and I, told you, I told you when we met, when I looked at that network that you have just off that advisory group, I said, I said, that's a, that's a, a global advisory group that can literally, yeah. literally help any size organization through just about anything. And now you guys are seeing the, the demand in this. But, but what do decision makers at these companies really need to pay attention to in this time? Because right now, I think uh, yeah. people are scrambling, right? They're scrambling yeah. to, and they're reacting, but they also need to start thinking about tomorrow. Not just today. Well, they do. And I mean, I think that, look, I mean, who knows where tomorrow is, right? But you've obviously got this massive, you know, this pandemic crisis has meant that business has just been completely thrown up in the air. What we do know is the, the hostiles, the unfriendlies out there have increased their attacks like you've never seen. So anybody who's actually trying to deny, deny they're being attacked is, is, is with their head in the sand. Um, what we also are hearing coming back from the street is this, that the I think there's probably a, a very large number of companies that have been attacked, possibly been breached. The media aren't picking up on that necessarily because they've got plenty of other things they can talk about at this moment in time. And so why talk about cybersecurity, which for many companies, given their you know, the, the the financial markets out there and what have you is probably a blessing in disguise, definitely a blessing in disguise. And I think that, you know, companies at this moment in time have really, they're sort of falling into two veins. And and I think that there's those that, particularly the tier ones, have probably got pretty much of this covered. Um, you know, they made the right investments, they've got the teams, they've got the money, they've got the resources. They actually should be, they're getting attacked and attacked heavily, um, but they've got the ability to contain it. My biggest concern is these tier twos, tier threes, uh, uh, Dean, um, because they've sort of known cybersecurity is out there. They don't necessarily understand what cybersecurity really means. They sort of do, who, who does that in our company? Well, it's a technology thing, isn't it? Well, cybersecurity is not a technology thing. It's about risk management, first of all. So they hand the responsibility to the CIO. The CIO takes the responsibility, brings in somebody that they believe is a CISO or an information security expert. Maybe that person wasn't as good as what they were saying they were. You know, you've got, so you've got a situation at the moment, these tier twos, tier threes, where guess what, guys? You know, you stand to have as much penalty against you for data breach and loss of data uh, uh, as the big guys do. And if you aren't spending money and finding out in your company has that taken place or what have we got, what do we need to invest in or have we got the right people in here? All of these elementary uh, uh, areas, you could be really, really badly off. And with the deployment of people, obviously, to home working, et cetera, this creates an even bigger security risk. I mean, I hear this all the time. You know, where's the crisis management plan? Where's the business continuity plans, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an absolute nightmare for them. And I think that what you've got to look at, what you've got to look at for tomorrow, uh, as any business um, from that respect, is that you've got to be able to look at your uh, uh, company and realize that you need to have genuine assessment done. You need to understand where's your resilience, what level is your resilience at, and you need to take this seriously. And if you do not take this seriously, you're not protecting your board, you're not protecting your C-suite, you're not protecting your customers, you're going to get at some point caught out because, you know, this is an invisible enemy. Dean, this is an invisible enemy out there. You don't know what's going on. And in many cases, it's organized criminals um, that have uh, got a ton of money to be able to spend there just bombarding companies' infrastructure, trying to find ways to be able to get in, leaving things out there, back doors, et cetera, et cetera, to come back revisit later. So if, if you don't believe it's happening, uh, you've got your head in the sand. It is happening. And I think that what you've got to do is you've got to embrace this correctly. You don't need to panic. Right, but get some expertise. If you can't afford to invest in cybersecurity teams, then at least get you know one or two individuals that can come in and take a look for you and give you uh, a view and opinion on on what uh, you know what is going on in your company today, where the gaps are, 
and what you can do to improve that. Never going to be 100% safe in cybersecurity, never. Right? But you've got to understand, as a business, you've got to understand the risks. You've got to understand where your red flags are. You know, what I, what I like, I was talking to one of our advisors the other day, Dean, this is, this is really important, right? Most people at the board level, most people at the C-level, except for the CIO and the CISO, et cetera, probably don't understand cybersecurity technology and the detail behind it. What they do understand is dollars or pound signs, yeah. right? And the point being there is that get advisors to work with you that are not just telling you how to fix problems, but translating that risk into what it actually means if you have a breach that you're going to be impacted on in terms of your revenues, that business may not, well, that business unit may not be able to do any more revenues for three, four, five, six months. What's it going to do to your PL, right? What's it going to do to, to, to so many different things of your business, your valuation, if you're publicly traded, or, 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 you know, how you contain I mean, that, et cetera, et cetera. Got to do this, Dean. You can't hide your heaven's head. A crisis like we're in right now is, is the, the thing that it's actually illustrating is just what you haven't got. Yeah. And I, and I and was thinking, as you were talking about boards and things like that, many of these companies have investors, right? So those investors are at huge risk. And 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 I don't think there's enough conversation talking about the impact because, you know, the minute that PL shuts down for anything, whether it's COVID or it's a cyber attack, it's a whole different day. It's a whole different game. And uh and and that could be the final string on on a lot of these companies that that are, you oh, know. Yeah on the edge or just oh, yeah. hanging on or cutting the close, you know? Yeah. yeah, the investors, I mean, you know, I talk to them. I talk to the PE firms. We obviously, we work with that community because, you know, they, they need our help in terms of finding talent, et cetera, for them and, and doing advisory work as well. But, you know, when I'm talking to them, you know, they're on daily calls right now with their portfolio, you know, because they're looking at how do we continue business and more importantly, where the revenue is going to come from. Because you know as well as I do, Q2, Q3 are going to be disastrous in terms of figures for everybody, right? Nobody's selling anything properly out there except for the few companies that are able to trade off the, the, the mess that we're actually in. And so when you talk to those for you guys, they've got their eyes on what do we need to do to actually keep this business alive. But what you're also saying to them, well, it's not just what you've got to do to keep them alive. Now you've got everybody deployed outside. It's keeping them secure as well. I mean, yeah. you know, you try to keep them going with the revenues. You may have to pump more money in. But if you're pumping more money into something which is then going to get breached and they're going to steal, steal a whole bunch of data from you, did you did you actually hear I don't know if I can mention this on, on on the podcast, but it was in the news. Did you actually hear about the Lady Gaga, Madonna, uh, the the legal firm that represents them got breached? You know, I mean, they're, they're out there. They're, their personal they're, they're data, all their personal data is in there. It's, it's, it's now on the dark web somewhere. Somebody's blogging that stuff out. I mean, you know, it's not to say what I told you was going to happen. If you think it's not going to happen to you, there's a legal firm. It's not a big Sony. It's not a big, you know, uh, a Disney or something like this, which are obviously under constant attack uh, for many different reasons. It's a legal firm. But somebody is able to work out, yeah, but you know, well, they've got some valuable data from high-end worth clients. Let's go after it. You know, what, what can I tell you? Any business is susceptible right now. You got it. You got it. You got to put your head out of the sandman. You don't need to spend fortunes of money, but you don't need to go and get a big consulting firm and Deloitte or Pricewaterhouse or Accenture or something like that. You're actually probably wasting money doing that. No disrespect to them. They're brilliant companies. So, uh, uh, you know, what I'm trying to explain there is the fact that you just need really good expert advice that's independent, that's impartial, it's not trying to flog you something, you know, oh, you got these problems, but guess what? I've got a tool here or a product there that's going to solve that problem for you. You know, get a person come in, do an assessment for you, uh, and genuinely be able to put out there what you may or may not need and what you may or may not have to do to change. Um, uh, it's straightforward. Everybody should do it. It costs a few thousand dollars. The other thing, Dean, we didn't touch on as well, but I think you sort of um, – uh, brought it about in, in a different way is the other thing is that we're getting very very uh, strict on uh, uh, data privacy and those laws haven't gone away and just because we're in a pandemic doesn't mean to say that if your data gets breached that you aren't still going to face fines you are as far as we're concerned everybody everybody we talk to who has knowledge about data and data privacy are saying well, it's business as usual they may delay fining but they will fine 
you know. So you got to be smart, man. You can't. You're you're very very vulnerable at the moment, and and that that's not going to change for any time sure. Well, and the and the crazy part is, um, I was just talking to some of my. Um, I own I own part of another company based out of Palo Alto, so I stay in touch with that whole community. And uh, we were talking this morning, and my friends at Google and and Amazon and some of the other companies, Salesforce, are talking about that they're thinking about shutting down those campuses and actually keeping people working from home. And that's that's yeah. a distrib- that's what I call a distributed threat. I don't even know if that's a legit term, but I'm like. What happens is, you know, I'm sharing this bandwidth that we're on right now, even though I have a business dedicated bandwidth in here, I'm sharing it with my neighbors, my kids, my neighbor's kids, and and God knows who else. And that's a two-way street. Anytime you're plugged into the net, man, that's a two-way street. So now all of a sudden you're logging in, not just on your computer, but into your databases for the company. And those threats haven't even been been solved yet. So so and and I think people are going to be even if you said you have to come back to work now, everything's open. I think people are going to want to maybe not come back to work when things open. So now you got this whole dynamic of of you know the today problem, but now this is a big tomorrow problem too. Oh, absolutely. Look, I mean, I read today that you know the commercial landlords out there are seeing twenty percent. Uh, uh, drops in rent already. They're seeing people just vacate the the offices, give up the the leases. Twitter already announced that they're basically telling all of their employees, I think it was Twitter, um, saying that uh, you can all work from home. Um, You don't need to come back and work from the office, period. Um, From now on, in other words, not just for three months, from now on, uh, homework instead. Um, We're going to see this, and we're going to see this change. And I'm excited about that change. I, I mean, I've been banging this drum for I don't know how long about the fact that, you know, let's get some real serious broadband capability across the countries and start allowing people to get themselves out of high urban cost, high taxation areas and into areas where they can actually have a quality of life, you know, with decent housing and and, and money in their back pocket that's not just going out on high rents or high mortgage payments because that's the only place you can live because that's how you get to work. So I think there's there's some great things coming down the pathway. But, you know, to do that, we've got to see governments willing to support building that, you know, technology infrastructure. We've got to see companies willing to support the fact that, yes, we're going to go this direction, but what does that mean from security? And what does that mean in adoption of digital transformation? I was talking to one of the biases the other day, and he just said, well, what you're going to see tomorrow, simply put, is accelerated digital growth, because everybody's now realized, oh, well, this could become the new norm. We may have more of these lockdowns, certainly until we've got a vaccine, we're going to have on, on, off, on, off anyway. I think we all agree with that, right? So in which case, we've got to uh, make sure that businesses or the business has to make sure that it's embracing digital transformation. And if you embrace digital transformation, you've got to embrace security, cybersecurity, because it's the same thing. You can't have one without the other because you're leaving yourself vulnerable. So the great thing is that out of this chaos, yes, we're going to have a change, but we're adopt, we're adapt. We've always done that, for goodness sake. That's not going to be the problem. But the problem is, is that you've got to do it in a way that the areas that you don't understand, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. The areas that you don't understand, for goodness sake, don't sit there and think, well, I don't really understand that, so I won't inquire about it. I won't push. I won't go and find out. Go and find out. Because this could be the big difference between your business thriving or you closing up shop. Simple as that. Once a a tier two or tier three business, particularly tier three, you get a breach and you start facing some of the fines that are out there that you could ultimately uh, end up facing, you can be out of business literally overnight. You can be closed up and it's all gone. And it was just because you didn't do something sensible and spend a few thousand dollars. Silly, really silly thing. Yeah, I know it's it's crazy, man. Well, this is uh, this is exactly what I wanted to get out of this. I think people need to hear this. I think they need to have a wake up call. Um, and uh, and then um, I know you guys uh, uh, do a, do a lot of advisory services. I I was sort of impressed because you know with the consulting background when I saw advisory and consulting. 
I saw everything from, from risk assessments to policy review. And I come from a compliance background, so I smiled when I saw compliance on the list because that's a big deal. You know, I come from Merrill Lynch and banking and all that stuff. And it's like, man, you got to have that in place. And then, uh, of course, we need the right people. You couldn't have said it better. It, you know, you need the right people, whether it's if you can't afford them inside, you need to have them come in from the outside, but but get a good team going so that the company is in a good position not to shut down or get shut down. Yeah, yeah, Dean, I think you're, you're, you're to the point, you know, if you put it into just, you know, simple steps. First of all, you know, wake up to the fact that go out, get an assessment, um, bring an independent, must go independent because that way you're getting, you're getting a, a, a thought uh, and information put back to you without an agenda behind it to turn you into a you know ongoing uh, annuity paying customer, which is what the big consulting firms are, are all about. So go get independent uh, advice, telling you you know doing an assessment, telling you where you are at this moment in time. Even if you got it done six months ago, twelve months ago, it's changed. You've got to do it again, right? Look at the people within that assessment. It's not to say, oh my goodness me, I haven't got the right team. It's to say, have you got the right people in the right place? Um, and then look at the reporting structure. You know, how does cybersecurity work today when it's reporting into, say, for example, the, the CIO or the CTO, which is invariably a, a lot of companies have that that way. That's a conflict of interest. Why is that a conflict of interest? Well, the conflict of interest is the CIO, CTO want to do things with technology, want to spend money in technology, building it themselves or bringing in various different tools from elsewhere as they race into the sort of digital transformation era. Um, and they may not want to hear what the security experts are telling them about the, the vulnerability that that investment can make or what that investment needs to also be backed up with in terms of security investment to say, yeah, we can do that. But we've got to spend money in this area of security to ensure that as we do that, we're not leaving ourselves vulnerable. So I need some more budget. They don't want to hear that. So the companies really need to, I, I much prefer to see uh, a CISO, and the CISOs prefer it, of course, themselves, going into a CEO. But if that's not going to be the case, get the CISO into the CFO or into the chief legal officer if you happen to have one. Um, try not to get them into the CIO. They need to be working hand in hand. They need to be supporting each other. They don't need to have one working for each other because it will cause problems and leave yourself still vulnerable uh, if you're not careful, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. Um, 28 advisors on my group today. Uh, and, and plenty out there that we're in network and contact with. I, I find very few anybody that I've asked the same question to that have told me, uh, "No, you're wrong. Um, it's perfectly okay to go into uh, uh, go into the CIO." They all say we want the independence. We want to be able to state our opinion without feeling that. Well, I don't want to say something because Bob's my uh, uh, or Sheila's my boss, and the last thing I want to do is contradict them. Do you see what right. I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, so that's awesome. So, um, so you've got a, an amazing advisory team uh, you yeah. have assembled with an amazing network, as you as you talked about, which our audience knows all too well because uh, we, yeah. we've talked about it for decades. Um, so, if somebody wants, you know, what's the best way that if somebody wants to get a hold of you, uh, where would you where would you want them to go? How how would they get a hold of you? Oh, great question. I mean, our, our, obviously, we have our website up and running, and that's uh, easy to find, dttransformation.com, um, uh, D for David, T for Tommy, transformation.com. Of course, I'm on LinkedIn. The company's on LinkedIn. Alistair Wells, you're on LinkedIn. You can find me through there, and that's got all my contact details. It's got my phone number, got my email address. And I think like yourself, Dean, you know, running our own businesses, we tend to be 24-7. So <laughs> yes. I never look at it and think any time is a bad time to, to call or reach out. Um, and, you know, I think in terms, and then also there's uh, team members. One of the things we, we didn't touch on, which I think is a really important um, point here, I've got a gentleman called Matt Decker. He's one of your oh, yeah. neighbors, I believe. Yep. Yeah, Illinois boy. Uh, Matt's uh, running our interim practice. Now, this is really exciting, Dean. This is what companies need to grab hold of as well, particularly if they look at DTT, is that actually going out today and spending money on building big teams and hiring permanent may not be very cost effective for you, may actually not be required until you understand what your strategy is going to be in the next three to six to 12 months in terms of digital transformation, embrace, et cetera. So instead of doing that, you may want to look at interim. I definitely know certain countries where 
say, for example, the UK. If you employ somebody in the UK, you know, if you let them go, it's four weeks uh, salary as a minimum, uh, holiday pay, all these bits and pieces they have to pay. Um, it's expensive. So, you know, I think that companies need to be smart. You need to get access to specialist skill. Um, you can buy that in on an hourly basis, a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis, um, just while we get ourselves through the next few months. And then build that strategy up, but don't do nothing. That's the most important thing. No, amen, brother. And uh, I'm so glad that uh, on this planet, we have the opportunity to connect and meet with so many people. And I'm so glad uh, we got to connect and meet uh, over over uh, the last year. And I've learned so much from you and, and from your advisory team. And and I love Matt Decker. I, I knew him before he came on board, so I'm a big fan. Everybody loves Matt. Everybody yeah. loves yeah. Matt. It's easy for me, yeah. yeah. He's a great guy, Dean. You know, he's a great guy. And I can't wait to we finally be able to go and have a social distance beer together. You know, that'd be nice. <laughs> me, you and Matt. Right? Or, or a bourbon or a scotch, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's a big bourbon guy. You're right about yes, that. Yes, he is. So am I. So am I. That's how we, that's how we met. You are. Yeah, that's how we met. Yeah. Ah, now the truth comes out, you see. I get it. Yes, I get it, man. Yes, there you man. are. Yeah, right. great. Right. This well, has been well, brilliant. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being on the show. We appreciate it. And, uh, we'll we'll put uh, Alistair's contact information and his company information in the show notes, and uh, I encourage you to at least have a conversation uh, with them. So if this is something that you're talking, and and I think he made a key point here that this is not an IT problem. This is a business problem, and it needs to be treated as a business problem. So make sure you get people in the conversation that control the money, the operations and actually control the company, so uh, and affect the growth of the company. So um, all hands on deck, let's be in this together, let's help each other out, and please contact uh, Alistair and his team at DTT Transformation so that they can help you get to that next level. Alistair, thanks again, and I know you and I are talking super quick, so <laughs> we'll talk Indeed. soon. Indeed, it's a pleasure, Dean. Thanks for this, and uh, pass my best on to everybody uh, uh, and um, and let's uh, catch up soon, my friend. Thank you very much for inviting me on. You got it, man. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Influence Factory podcast. We welcome feedback and suggestions. You can provide these by visiting our website at www.myinfluencefactory.com. And if you are interested in Social Jack's 90 Days to Influence program, you can simply go to 90daystobusinessinfluence.com and simply ask for the next steps. We invite you to download episodes on your favorite channel, YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and who knows where else in the future. We will also provide occasional on-location live streams with special guests that we will announce in our community Facebook group, Business Influencer Alliance, as well as on all Social Jack channels. Our mission is to help you build your digital business influence, with this podcast, as well as inspire, educate, and entertain those who are hungry to collaborate in a cool place with cool business professionals just like you.